You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 524, blind dates and getting married at first sight, short gigs, long gigs, weird gigs, we've seen them all, and the strange world of comedy duos. That's all coming up after Paul Weller and Close to You. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you walk near just like me? There aren't enough adjectives in the world for me to explain how much I love that track and indeed the album from which it comes. It's a lovely, lovely album of cover versions from 2004. The album Studio 150 reached number two in the UK and from it that was Close to You. That's a lovely version. I like that song a lot. So it would take a lot for me to be on board with someone covering it. But it turns out Paul Weller is well equipped to do that. Yes, I love Paul Weller. Uh, Thanks for joining us for Parish Council episode 524. I'm Terence Stackham and thank goodness she survived another reshuffle. It's Juliet Harris. 
Yes, I keep expecting to uh, mm. log on to this podcast recording each week to find that Terence Dackham no longer exists in my contacts. But uh, I'm very yeah. glad to to be able to survive another reshuffle. I I will com- I'm committed to levelling up this podcast, Terence. Good morning, everyone. Excellent. Um, now, it may not seem likely that the Guardian newspaper and the Mail have much in common, but recently mm. the Mail has directly copied one of the Guardian's popular features by exactly replicating its own version of Blind Date, mm. um, where unknown people are put together on a dinner date and then asked to give separately feedback on each on each other. Uh, some couples the same sex, some are male and female. Mm. And it's the male and female couples, if you'll forgive me, that particularly intrigue me in this context and equally make me feel sad because they always follow the same pattern. And I want to Mm. ask you about this. Almost inevitably, the woman will have some criticism of the man, his dress sense, conversation, anything really, and end up saying that there's no way they'll ever meet again and a score of maybe five or six out of ten is given. Mm. Then we find the chap is like a little lost puppy who says he was looking for love, really likes the woman, was disappointed they didn't go on somewhere, hopes they'll meet again, scores the woman as a nine or ten out of ten. Mm. Why why does this happen week after week, Jules? I I don't really know, to be honest. There's some, it's interesting because you only get, it's, it's sometimes you have interesting the ones where there have been dram, semi-dramatic incidents it's very telling that the, that the people on each side sometimes have a different sort of perception of that and mm. sometimes I wonder if it is about perception there was a, one particular chap a while ago and my friend said that there was sort of because this is often discussed on social media and mm. my friend said that there was a sort of a, th- a feeling that you got the impression from the woman that the man might not have behaved that well. The man Mm. gave the woman a glowing report. And my friend said there was a theory that the chap had rather bumped up his scores about the woman to make himself seem, like you say, very reasonable and like a lost Mm. puppy and that sort of thing. So I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? I I find the Guardian's blind date column to be always quite interesting, I must admit. What, what, What makes it particularly, what's particularly good about it is that there is a chap that tweets as the guy liner. Mm. And every week he writes his own review of The Guardian's Blind Date. And his is often the one that is worth reading because he attempts to kick the tyres of what is really going on underneath. And it's, it's often quite entertaining. He, you know, makes huge assumptions about the people that probably aren't true. But uh, I find that the sort of the, the more the director's cut version or the sort of, you know, the director's commentary version of Blind Date, I find even more enjoyable than Blind Date. Personally, I used to get frustrated and I think this is still the case. I used to find um, non-heterosexual couples, particularly couples of women, to be very, very underrepresented on this. Mm. Really, not you know, hardly any at all. Um, my friend went on this and had a had a reasonable experience. It would seem. I'm not sure I would want my picture in the newspaper for mm. all to see. I must admit. I, I wonder if Blind Date, the Guardian, it was part of the Guardian's Weekend magazine, the last ever edition of which was produced yesterday. So I wonder if this will survive. If if it will. Oh, they, 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 they're stopping the magazine. It would seem so, yes. It was oh, the last Lord. ever weekend yesterday. So I don't know if it's going to be replaced with an equivalent. I'm not quite mm. sure. And if some of the columnists and the people that were doing things will Crikey. stay, will go will go to a new thing or not. I don't know. Maybe the Daily Mail have started their version in anticipation of the Maybe Guardian's so. version no longer existing. I don't know. But anyway, it's it's... Mm. 
I think the thing is, is that it's a fun thing to read quite often or, or an entertaining thing to read if you're a sort of a punter reading the newspaper. But given given that it's being reported in a national newspaper, I'm not sure how honest the people are being mm. in their in their things. Would I would I be that honest? Probably not. No. They always seem to be high flying people as well. They're always like media executives. And, Although um, some of them, I think, occasionally have rather puffed up titles. This might yeah, be exactly, yeah. on my part. But, but, you know, when you when you get a twenty four year old, you know, girl yeah, from exactly. Chelsea that says, you know, there's some executive this or other, yeah. it's like, yeah, are you photocopying? I, I I'm a bit cynical mm. about this. I must admit. Of course, the concept of blind date in the UK it takes us back to the 1980s mm. and Saturday Night TV, doesn't it? Mm. It does. The excellent blind date. Well, I say the the rather entertaining blind date hosted by Cilla Black in her sort of light entertainment years pomp in the 80s and the 90s. And I think it, it stopped in the 2000s. I think it went on for a little mm. while. And I think they tried to bring it back. But um, she so the format for, for viewers that are uh, listeners that are thankfully unfamiliar with this. Uh, the <laughs> format was is that, is that there'd be, a, you know, be a person each week um, or sometimes two people depending on the length of the show where so they would bring them on and they would be sat behind. This is so sweet when you look back on it now. They, there was a physical set. They'd be sat behind a partition and and this person would be asked, you know, what what are you looking for in a man slash woman? And, and in those days, I think, again, it was all heterosexual. I oh, think. Yeah, and um, and this, you know, say it's a woman they'd be interviewed and say, and, they, and they, the whole thing was meant to be lighthearted. And it was looking back on it heavily scripted in mm. terms of, you know, and, and this person would have to ask questions about how fun the three guys behind this, the, the the partition were and in one two and three were sat on those bizarre boy bandy stools <laughs> and they would they would have to say oh you know so they go gary what is your most romantic evening out or things like that and then all of the the, the, the quest, gary and the others would have to answer the questions eventually this person would have to pick which person they would go on a date with and there would be a big reveal the partition would be pulled back it would be quite awkward as they hugged and then they would then they would go they'd be sent away on a date and and it was a very, uh, yeah, it was very strange. Sometimes they would fly them abroad. They'd go to places like Alicante. It was definitely the world, the world in which TV had infinite budgets anyway. And then the next week, they'd come back and they'd both be interviewed, in not a dissimilar style to this, sort of to camera separately as to what they thought about the date. And again, it often followed the same pattern. There were a few couples that got married, I think, as a result mm. of Blind Date, as there have been as a result of The Guardian's Blind Date. But... Um, yeah, it was it was the, the most entertaining example of this ever was and this was a bit of a story at the time and I, I was reminded of this from the excellent Julia Rayside, um, former TV critic of The Guardian, does a, a, a podcast, I think it's on hiatus at the moment, called Box of Delights, in which she gets various or her mates, but various sort of TV writers and actors to come on and talk about their favourite TV moments. Mm. They are never, they're rarely big things. I think Richard Bailey talks about the moon landings once, but otherwise they're they're all fairly sort of like some the woman whose teapot's broken when the shelf collapsed and changes, things like that. And Sally Hughes, the journalist, went on to talk about the time that Blind Date was infiltrated by an undercover journalist. So there's this woman called Nicola, I think her name's Nicola Gill, who um, she was, and and it's worth listening to this edition of the podcast because Mm. it it kind of unwraps, because Sally Hughes has got really into this and done loads of research, and it kind of unwraps what was going on. So, um, So Nicola Gill 
um is is moved from one magazine to another and took this story with her that she had the idea that she could she would infiltrate blind date and no one would know that she was a contestant she went on as a sort of the, the one that picks who they're going to go on a date with right and 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 then she would write about it afterwards and write the inside story of what it's like to go on blind date which is quite a fun story i'm i'm, hmm. I'm quite into that um so she moved from one magazine to cosmopolitan and took the story with her now, ITV or Granada, whoever it was, managed to uh, find out what this was, uh, find out her story. Uh. And so Granada claimed afterwards that they tapped a phone line or something oh, or something God. that happened. They tried to make it sound very, very, mm. sort of, you know, oh, aren't we clever? And isn't this like yeah. James Bond? The actual story was that one of the researchers or no, one, one of Nicola Gill's colleagues on Cosmopolitan went to a party at Granada Studios and got drunk and blurted it out oh, to a member of staff God. there who then, of course, discovered. But it did result in this iconic, I would say, TV moment where Cilla Black went like an inspector calls on her, like on proper <laughs> TV, and 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 you know after they'd come back and she was like, well, you know, on that it wasn't even before they went on the date. She was like, well, you know, I understand that, and it was like proper. It was like she, or she was like Pyro or something. She went or Columbo. She like completely unspilled it, and everyone's going boo, you know, in the audience. Yeah. It's absolutely hilarious, and she's like, honestly you've deprived Paul of this chance to go on a date and, and it was really entertaining. The flip side to this, the, the interesting twist at the end, because you do think, oh, this is a bit, you know, mm. people people shouting for the lines. This was, I think Sally <laughs> points out, this was this was in the, the sort of, the, the, the it was not long after the death of Diana and you can hear someone in the crowd shout something about Diana when they're all booing oh journalists in a very, very odd public mood. And the weird thing was, Nick, according to Nicola Gill, at the end of it all, when she's like just sort of standing, I suspect slightly shell shocked mm. as they're sort of taking the set down. Cilla Black walks up to her and says, "Good for you. I thought that was a really clever thing to do. I had a massive row with my producer about this because I did not want to do what I just did. I wish you every success with your career. Good luck." And <laughs> you think, "Wow, that is that is so, so yeah, that is a very curious tale." Whenever I think of Ryan Day, mm. I think of Paul Paul, who who I think in the end did goes to the Isle oh, of Wight, or whatever it was, by himself on a yeah. holiday for a couple of days. And uh, and yeah, the curious tale of Nicola Gill. How bizarre! What a strange moment. Of course, today that, that was the 1980s before the internet. Of course, today I'm sure they must do multiple um, internet. Yeah. Checks this was late 90s, stuff. but yes, we yeah. still didn't have the internet yeah. to the extent that we do now. Absolutely. On a very similar note, I watched a TV show this week. Um, it's the UK version of Married at First Sight. Mm. And the, tel- the, the title tells you the format. And this too made me feel sad in that it seemed to be a series of ritual humiliations for people, yeah. many of whom seem to be on the edge of breakdowns or of distinct mm. self-esteem or mental health issues anyway. And I found it really demeaning and exploitative. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Jules, but... Uh, also, you know, you were saying, well, would you uh, take part in the Guardian blind date? Would you marry someone at first sight? I mean, absolutely not. Although, as I pointed out to someone the other day, I've yet to meet anybody I would like to marry so may- that I actually yeah. know. So may- maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe this is the way forward. And I don't know. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah. yeah, like you, I find this to be a bit depressing. Although it's a little bit like Channel 4 in general, I think, nowadays, a bit like the Big Brother thing. And the 
I suppose as a one-off experiment, at the heart of this, it is an interesting psychological idea, isn't it? Is it possible mm. for there to be love at first sight? Is yes, this a thing or not? Point. There's yeah. a, there's, there's a, like with all of Channel 4's exploitative reality documentaries, there's a, there's a, as my friend once put it when talking about someone that had lost their temper over something ridiculous, there's a, there's a, a germ of a legitimate concern there. So there is a sort of a germ of a good idea in yeah. this. But like you say, the, the thing that, and I think a lot of programmes, and it's not just Channel 4 programmes, a lot of reality TV programmes are a good idea that is then sensationalised by what appears to be, like you say, when it comes to due diligence, a total lack of psychological screening, a total mm. lack of, of kind of um, good you know, sort of care of their, of their people. And I remember reading an article in The Guardian recently about people that have gone on reality TV many oh it it was to do with the the people that thought they'd been blasted into space when they hadn't i think and what was interesting about that and other programs around that time which you get the impression from contestants that have been on that there used to be a lot more in terms of psychological screening aftercare taking into account you know after it's gone public and gone you know gone on tv how these people are going to feel and it seems increasingly that there isn't that nowadays and i think we've talked about this previously in the context of love island or love island depending on how you want to put your emphasis on that and and how there's been you know recent scandals where several contestants have since passed away um, because they, you know, because they, they, they've suffered mental health as a result of the public attention of having gone on the programme. There doesn't seem to be anything in the way of looking after people after they've done that, which if you're going to if you're going to do that, and there is an argument that well, people should know what they're getting themselves in for. Yeah, but do they know if they if they if they're young people that are going on Love Island, if they're like 19? Is it fair to expect these people to have worked this through? There is a duty of care, I think, on the people that that make the programmes. And this, again, I recommend this every time we talk about TV. But um, mm. that that documentary that I think we talked about that was on BBC Three, which is not documentary, it's a drama, and I think it's called something like Make Me Famous. Oh, the and Reggie Yates one. Yes, the Reggie Yates yeah. one. I would recommend that, and I think that that has a lot of good points to say about how people are sort of treated as a, as a, as, a, as a result of reality TV. So yeah, I agree with you that that it's it might be an interesting concept, but it, the way that it's you know there are so many episodes of this, I could watch this as like a one-off experimenty thing. I wouldn't be interested in seeing a whole series of this, particularly as you say, that it feels like the people have deliberately been picked to be vulnerable and to provide us with entertainment yeah. as a result of that. Yes, exactly. So I guess I found it very sort of sad and, and, and somewhat depressing. Coming right up, short gigs, long gigs, mm. weird gigs. We've been there. Um, that's next after Aflex Palace. She said everything would be okay.
I really like this a great deal. It's by um, a, a, an outfit called Affleck's Palace. I presume named after the um, after the the previous sort of goth shop in Manchester. And uh, this is a carpe diem. Yeah, I really um, really love that. It's I, I like also like the fact that they say they're fired by the spirit of Spike Island, which I think yes, um, it's very very Mancunian. The whole thing is 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 very much a thing. I I, I yeah, I really approve of it. Baggy Delia returns. Um, it, <laughs> what a great phrase. <laughs> Baggy Delia. Uh, it's, it's much easier to find out how long a gig is going to be these days. If the concert is part of a tour, you can look up the set list and find out how many and which songs are going to be featured. Mm. And, of course, the Internet throws up all sorts of information that helps us know what's going to happen. I had, a, I had a big here's what you could have won moment once when I went to see the second night of two nights of PJ Harvey at the Brixton, at Brixton Academy in 2016. And me and my pal that went were very frustrated to discover that she'd done a very rare outing of her cover of Dylan's Highway 61 revisited the previous night and did not do that at our oh, evening. So, is, yes, that is what the internet does for you. But it's FOMO, isn't it? Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Hasn't always been the case. So without the internet, I remember um, coming out of a Ramones gig in the, in the mid 1970s. I think it was at the Roundhouse mm. where they played about 15 songs, but it was one, two, three, four, blam, blam, blam. One, yeah. two, three, four, blam, blam, blam. 15 songs, each of which lasted about two minutes. Oh, wow. So it was 30 or so minutes for the whole thing, and the set was over. And I think when I saw the Sex Pistols at Brunel University, it was about the same length. Yes. Um, have you experienced any gigs where you felt short-changed, Jules? Well, I mean, when bands are very, very late that come on, that is very oh. frustrating. I, we've talked previously about Lauren Hill's poor quality oh, type TP, yes, and it actually yes. puts me off. I wouldn't see her just because you think, yeah. well, what's the point in us having to wait around for all this time? We've got to catch a train home. I did have a, an experience, and it wasn't their fault. This, again, this is my fault, where I went to see what a bank of war paint play on a weeknight up in London. I think that might have been at the Brixton Academy. And I was with a friend of mine who was also having to travel back that evening and so we had to we, we realized that we couldn't stay for the whole gig and we between the two of us said but what's the one song you hope that we get to see before we have to leave and um mine uh, hers was was uh, one of us was undertow and the other one it might have been it might have been bees i think or so oh no it was it was billy holiday so so we said well, these are the two songs and so it gets to the point we go okay we're gonna have to go in 10 minutes so let's see what, what they come up with and they played uh, undertow followed by Billy Holiday at which point we went great let's go thanks everyone we went and ran off so so maybe sometimes you have to you have to make the gig that you want to I out of the gig so. that you go to I've had a I had a, an experience I went to see Patty Smith who you know, we're big admirers of her around these parts mm. um, at the Delaware Pavilion in Bexhill and I know this was 2011 because a friend of mine was uh, was working on the door and was heavily pregnant with her child who is now 10 when she <laughs> let us in so this is how I know this is, is 2011 yeah. and I've been warned beforehand that there were two Patty Smiths that perform. We got the Patty Smith that did three encores, um, seemed to entirely busk horses with her daughter on the piano, and literally they had to put the lights up to get her off stage. She she was absolutely brilliant and she really loved she obviously loved the audience. She kept waving from the wings and had to be bundled off. She was really, really into playing for us. She went on and on and on for ages. And when I told my friends in 
nearby record shop music is not dead about this they said oh so you've got the good patty smith mm. that's fine we went to see her at, in uh Auburn, i think at the snape festival and they said she came on did 45 minutes wasn't really feeling it went back off didn't come back so um so it seems like you might be lucky with some performers if, if you get them if they're if you're into it or not um we and again i i quite like sort of double guessing performers reputations preceding them um we saw the jesus and mary chain at the dead of war pavilion years ago i say years ago about four or five years ago and they were when they were promoting damage and joy their their excellent recent album and we were expecting them to be extremely grumpy and to not want to play anything you know they only want to play the new album they, and they largely promoted the new album which to be fair that's what the advertising was that's that's what we were all signing up to do and they went off and we thought oh you know i don't expect they're coming back for long and they came back and they did like seven or eight of the, the hits they basically mm. did all the singles from the 80s and the 90s and we were just aghast it was it was lovely that that you know this kind of grumpy band that i suspect probably left on the bus two minutes after the minutes after the gig yeah. finished managed to sort of knock out all these sort of you know give us all these treats and knock out all these songs I, i've never had one of these experiences where someone comes on after two songs and then goes off and it's genuinely weird but then i've never <laughs> seen the fall so so i suspect that's happened many many times by the way i had the bad patty smith i saw her also oh, at the roundhouse no. where she spent the whole gig bizarrely and quite um volubly spitting onto oh, the we, stage. We have, we have one spitting incident, but oh, apart from that, it was... Do that. Um, of course, um, 30 minutes was about the average for a top of the Bill Pop Act in the 1960s. You know, we think it would now mm. we'd feel really short change, but um, especially on the package tours that were very popular in the UK yes. in the 60s, and you, you'd get, I don't know, the Paramounts who would do two songs, three from Alma yes. Coke and three from maybe the Moody Blues or someone, then a break, then maybe 10 minutes uh, comedy from Jimmy Tarbuck. And then oh, the, wow. Be- the Beatles would do 10 songs in 30 minutes and no one would feel shortchanged. But- no, absolutely. I, I, I mean, th- to be honest, I still feel a little bit shortchanged until he said the Beatles and then the, yes. the VFM contingent of that went absolutely <laughs> through the ceiling. Speaking of, you know, of the Beatles, though, I, I mean, I've attended wonderful long gigs by Paul McCartney in particular. Mm. Um, we go on for hours. But the long longest time I've ever spent at a venue watching one act was mm. oddly Ken Dodd. Um, oh, yeah, but he was famous for it, wasn't it? For it doing like was. four and a half hour shows. People were sort exactly of leaving. To what he bed. Did. Yeah. Um, he was on tour in the early 1990s. And I think from memory, he did do over four hours. And I think he would have gone on if they hadn't turned the house lights up because I think everybody at the venue wanted to go home. Yeah, um, he was very, he was he was very well known for doing that, I think, as well. Um, a friend of mine's son wanted to get into stand-up at one point and um, wrote to Ken Dodd oh. for tips. And Ken Dodd invited him to a show. Oh, and this, he would have been in his sort of late 20s at the time, I think. And he said, why don't you come to this show? I'll, uh, here's a ticket for this show. Why don't you come and I'll put your name on the door and do come and say hello afterwards. And he did. And Ken oh. was lovely and really oh. sort of, you know, encouraging. And oh, yes, it's good for young people to want to get into this and was and was just everything you want someone in that position to be. So his humour is not always, when I say not always to my taste, I admire the fact that it was rarely distasteful. But, you know, it was, it was you know, he wouldn't be my favourite stand up. But everyone I know that's no. had uh, dealings with him has said what a genuinely generous and kind man he was. So that's that's very nice. That's a lovely story. Mm. Um, of course, 
um i've seen some weird gigs over 50 years or so and i'm not surprised yes exactly. <laughs> principal edwards magic theater don't probably mean very much these days but sort of art that's a very, i was gonna say that's that's a that's a very proggy name isn't it it is isn't it they, yes it was in that era principal edwards magic theater early 1970s seemed to be supporting every band every big gig i went to mm. and there, there were a lot of bongos and poetry oh <laughs> oh man, that's a bad combo in my yeah, bad, bad, yeah, really bad. Hawkwing gigs were always chaotic and yes, I can imagine nudity on the stage, which I found unsettling in my early teenage years. But I think um, a couple of the weirdest ones I've been to, one must include Todd Rundgren in the 1990s in London, where he performed in a sort of glass cage and invited oh, audience members to join him and play guitars. That was, that was <laughs> strange. That's but rather a weird. Number one weirdness must go to genesis in the peter gabriel years in the very early 1970s um at a college in surrey with about 50 other people there hard to believe now as mm. you know genesis are so sort of family and a re- a friendly. Yeah, absolutely, yes. yeah. it was rather scary peter gabriel had his hair all shaved at the front and he was stalking the hall wearing frightening costumes and hoods and masks. I was about 15 and I was really, I'll be honest, I was terrified by it. <laughs> oh, that does not sound like a pleasant evening out, I must admit. I'm no. not, I'm not very, I'm not very keen on that. Um, I have seen costumes on stage are always an interesting mm. thing, aren't they? We saw a, we saw a, a, a band supporting I Am Clute, I think. When I was at university, we used to go and see quite a lot of gigs. And we'd seen this band, I Am Clute, I think, supporting Cheering Breaks. And my friend had liked them very much. And they are, they're sort of like a slightly wryer elbow, I think, I Am Clute or Doves. They're from a similar area. I think I think that these bands are sort of big fans of them. I've seen them since. But my, my friend said, oh, I really like that I Am Clute. And they're playing a, a smaller venue in Norwich in a, in a few weeks' time. Can we go and see them? So, yeah, so, so we took some friends of ours and we went to see them. The support bands, there were two support bands. The middle band was a band called the Crane Builders from Liverpool, who were very pleasant. The bottom band were called Kings Have Long Arms. Uh-oh. And they, the singer was some, had a sort of a bucket hat on. But one of them, they, they, I mean, we hated them. We thought they were awful. But I remember the drummer had a gorilla costume on. <laughs> But he didn't have the head on. So he had this kind of big sort of menacing gorilla costume. And then this bald bloke's big, fat, sweaty (laughs) head, like popping out of the top of it. We were, I think when it comes to bizarre costumes on stage, I, yeah, I always, whenever I think of kings, kings have long arms, who are long since consigned to the dustbin of history, I think, I, I, I think of this, the, the, the gorilla that had the, the, the head, the sweaty bald head of a man instead. It was bad choice for a drummer. It's going to be like a sauna in a gorilla. he did. He did look extremely, extremely overheated. I must admit, although no one really wanted to approach him to tell him this. So, uh, <laughs> no, so yeah. Fair enough. Coming right up, the alliances, good and bad, in comedy duos. Uh, <laughs> that's right after this lovely track from Labby Simran.
a lovely song and such a beautiful voice and a very underrated musician one of a handful of hit singles and this from 1972 number 29 in the uk labby sifre and watch me yeah i think you're absolutely right to describe labby's underrated i think that is really spot on i we you don't apart from it must be love which i think everyone you know knows the madness mm-hmm. version of that they're really he's really underappreciated and i really wish that that more people knew how good he was really i i feel that you know he's really kind of fallen between the cracks in music mm. history and it's undeserved i think he deserves more of a platform it seems um, an exceptionally hard thing to do to keep teams of two double acts duos together in mm. harmony. We, we recently talked, of course, about how the Everly brothers spent much of their adult lives in yes. conflict. And um, you know, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, uh, how do you sleep? You know, and yes. the only thing you've done was yesterday and everything. Um, though John and Paul more or less patched it up, unlike Phil yes. and Don. In comedy, I was reading this week that um, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis didn't speak to each other for over 30 years wow. after they split their act up. So maybe it's quite surprising that the much-loved British duo, uh, Morecambe and Wise, they stayed together pretty much mm. in harmony right up to Eric Morecambe's death in 1984. Uh, this week I was listening to the audio version of the brilliantly researched new biography of Morecambe and Wise by Louis Barth. Um, mm. Really lovely, narrated by Pen. Pen- Penelope Keith and what a great choice for that that's that's a really good pick it really is it reminded me of the peculiar notion in retrospect um of how in comedy sketches in the 1970s Eric and Ernie would be portrayed as living together in a flat or apartment Mm. and then wearing pajamas would do a sort of comedy routine while sharing a double bed Mm. and incredibly no one took much heed of that in the 1970s. But looking back, that was a weird notion, Jules. It is very strange, isn't it? I mean, it's it's very, it's almost sweet in its kind of innocence, really. <laughs> There's a, um, 
It was Eddie Braben that decided to put them in bed together. There was a piece about this in the in the Radio Times. This was oh. a plugging. There was a, a, a really good a docudrama that was on years ago called Eric, Ernie and Me. I think Victoria Wood appeared in it as, as Eric Morecambe's mother. It was extremely good. And um, according to... Um, to uh, this chap, um, I'm trying to find his first name now, called uh, Forsyth, um, who was is uh, Neil Forsyth. His his name is, I believe, he was involved in um, sort of doing this drama, and uh, he said that apparently. Um, uh, Braben decided that he, you know, they ought to do this really, and and the others were were very reluctant to do mm. so. And they said that, that that in fact it was based on the fact that Laurel and Hardy had done this already. Apparently, mm. maybe it's this idea that that they are this sort of little family and this kind of un, un, inseparable unit. Yeah. yeah, it's strange, like you say. Really, it's a very it's a very peculiar kind of um way to present it i suppose but then it was it seemed to be a, a different time you know mainstream all family audiences they just seemed to buy it didn't, didn't they give Without it a second kind of, thought looking no. back you know it was just you didn't even think about it but how peculiar at you know at that time in retrospect and i suppose it would be even more of an outcry now wouldn't it because it would have all sorts of implications yes. which weren't although, thought of back then although having said that it's like when people go, you know, when people do outcry about things, mm. it's like, well, is it that or is it the fact that you're the one that's reading this into it? Mm. Maybe this is your, you know, you're reading this into it. It's fine. Not necessarily what they're presenting. It's what you're reading into it. So how yeah. is, you know, you could, yeah. there is an argument for that. Interestingly, pop quiz for you, Sir T. Mm. Um, who were the first um, married couple to be shown in bed together on primetime American TV? American TV, gosh. So I was going to say somebody in Coronation Street or something like that, but uh, American TV, no, you have to give me, I think you well, have to give me some. Well, they, they, they are animated. I oh, a cartoon. A yes, um, the first married couple to be shown in bed together was a cartoon in the States. So I'm not Tom and Jerry then, so they're not married. You're, 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 <laughs> I believe they never made it to the registry office. No. Yeah. Yeah, you're gonna to have to tell me who was it's, it. Uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Flintstone were the first. The first yes, were the first couple to be married couple to be shown in bed together, and probably, which goes to show. And I think that's it's worth mentioning that here because again, there's a sort of an innocence about it. Would kids have questioned them being in bed to get together? Absolutely not. I would say that was it no, was, just what was happening on the screen, wasn't it? So maybe, and that revelation, by the way, came from an excellent book that I very much enjoyed reading during lockdown. It's the sort of thing that you can pick up and put put back down again um it's called joined up thinking and it's by a chap called Stephen, and we're spelling Stephen s-t-e-v-y-n colgan mm. who since had an interesting life had been involved in the police i think for many years and ended up being sort of involved in qi and the idea is is that each chapter and each chapter is a sort of a discrete separate chapter so this is why it lends itself well to be being picked up and, and put down again starts and ends with the same fact so this chapter starts and ends with Fred and Wilma being the first, you know, couple to be shown in bed. And and then it, and then each fact leads on to another fact. And what he's trying to demonstrate is that everything is connected ultimately. And it goes to some really interesting places. That that the chapter coincidentally taught me what Scooby Doo's full name is, which I did not know. Apparently, the reason that Scooby is Scooby Doo is that his full name is Scooby Doo. And me and a friend of mine now refer to him as Scooby Doo. And you learn 
talking about Scooby Doo and various Scooby Doo's various um various relatives, including his sister Ruby Doo, who is the mother of Scrappy Doo, the as they describe here, the intensely irritating nephew that turns up in in later series. So it's like you say it's strange, but the fact that you know that the first married couple were the married couple were were on a cartoon makes me think that you know there was an innocence about it, and maybe it's the fault of other people for reading into it rather than yeah. necessarily the people that do that that, that put them doing the, these sort of things it must be a tribute to Morgan and Wise that they stayed together so long I mean, I mean notoriously their wives didn't like each other at mm-hmm. all so they never socialized away from the studios and rehearsal rooms but uh, well, that might have kept them together in a way exactly yes. each other. how about the quickest of quickfire quizzes about oh, famous duos to finish the today's audio presentation. I can't think of a better a better climax, personally. So let's go. Yes, absolutely. Uh, these are very quickfire questions for you and the listener. Yeah, come on, um, gang, we can do this. Nasha is the canine companion of which comic book character? Uh, Dennis the Menace, the British Cover. Dennis the Menace. One out of one. In computer games. What is the profession of Mario and Luigi? They are plumbers. They'd be really rich these days, wouldn't they? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Like, uh, no wonder they haven't made any games with them for a while. No, they have much work on. In their holiday homes in the Caribbean. <laughs> um, to have to Mulder and Scully were the lead characters in which TV show? The X-Files. Four out of four. Three out of three. Sorry, three out of three. Number, question say. four. Yeah, <laughs> I was ahead of myself there, but I think you may end up with four out of four. Barry David Elliott and Paul Harmon Elliott are better known as? Chuckle Brothers. Four out of four. Hey! Of right. See if you can get the lot. This is fifth and final question. They grew up three blocks away from each other in Queens, New York, and they first recorded under the names Tom and Jerry in 1957. Uh... Who are they? Simon and Garfunkel. Five out of five hey, on our quick five. Nice. They were very easy. Thank you. Thank you for softballing me, Terence. I very much appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks very much for listening this week. Yes, uh, ditto. Likewise, I, I, I applaud the sentiments of my venerable colleague. Um, Jules, if you're not getting married at first sight, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can play us some tunes on the radio. Absolutely. Do you know what? I, my diary is pretty free on that front. So, yes, I think what I'll do is I'll do some tunes from 7 to 9 this evening, which is Sunday, um, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, Mixler.com, M-I-X-L-R.com forward slash Juliet hyphen Harris or search for my name on the website. You find my channel. I'm live on that page from 7 till 9. Um, if you miss it and you'd like to catch up, there's a little button that says show reel on there. If you click that, it's got all the previous shows. Splendid. And some Spielbergs to play us out. Yes, absolutely. This is a curious thing, isn't it? I'm usually quite heavily opposed to children slash offspring slash siblings of the famous kind of cashing in with music careers. And, you know, if you told me before I'd heard this record that Steven Spielberg's stepkids had made it made a record, I probably would have avoided it like the plague. Thankfully for me and my preconceptions, I did not um, I did not know that. So I just heard this tune. I think it was recommended as sort of an enemy radar thing about 10 or 11 years ago and I just fell in love at first sight Terence. I'd marry this song if I could I just I fell in love with it instantly as soon as I heard it I think the vocals are beautiful I think it's such a lovely melody and I'm surprised that this hasn't gone on to be more venerated really because I think it's a lost classic um the uh, tune uh, the the band are called Wardell or Wardle and the tune is Opossum
Listening to a Parish Council production.